Well, how grateful we are for the unfathomable riches that we know in the Lord Jesus Christ. By His grace, we are redeemed, we are restored, and we are made new. And by His grace, through the Spirit coming to dwell within us, we are called to live a sober-minded spiritual life. So if you have your Bible, open with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 5 today and consider that very idea, the sober-minded spiritual life. Now Paul has used the first two chapters of this letter to the Galatian churches to defend his apostleship. He has set the stage for this rebuking exhortation that begins in chapter 3 and runs through chapter 4 where he where he comes at, where he rebukes and exhorts the Galatians because they're wavering on true and sound doctrine. They're wavering on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you remember back to chapter 1, Paul began by giving his credentials as an apostle. He told them that his message was directly from Christ. He defended his ministry against the attacks of the Judaizers. And then in chapter 2, which we have just finished, he told of some of the significant controversies that he had been involved in. He told about the Jerusalem Council, where these church leaders came together and they, they spoke and talked and debated and discussed whether or not salvation was by faith alone. Then Paul also talked about his public rebuking of Peter in chapter 2. And so now in chapter 3, he shifts. The idea shifts. The Galatians have kind of set up chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4, and then chapters 5 and 6. So as we move into chapter 3, it's as though the scene changes. Paul moves from going from playing defense to going on the offensive. He begins to exhort and correct the Galatian churches regarding their error in regard to the truth of the gospel. Now, very clearly, the Lord has prepared Paul for this very task. For Paul's life and ministry, since he was converted, since he came to Christ, he has been facing the attacks of these Judaizers. He has been prepared by the Lord for facing controversy. That has been what he has done for a number of years. You remember right after his conversion, he was run out of the town because he was preaching Christ. Time and time again, Paul has stared down the barrel of disagreement, especially with these Jews who hated him and who hated Christ. And so he stands up now to speak against these Jews and to proclaim the idea of the sober-minded spiritual life, a life that is by faith alone and in Christ alone. So let's read our text. Let's look at Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5. And then we will go to the Lord in prayer and dive in. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is the living and active, inspired word of God. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things 
in vain, if indeed it was in vain. So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the word of God. Let's now go to him in prayer. Our Father, we come before you now as we seek to study your word together. And we ask, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. Lord, today is a national holiday. Many probably have plans as soon as we conclude this service. And Lord, I pray that while we may have things that we need or want to get to today or tomorrow, I pray, Lord, that you would help us right now in these moments to focus our hearts and our minds on the truth of your word that is before us today. Lord, for it is your word that gives life. It is the gospel, the good news of Christ, that is the power to save. It is your word that sanctifies us. As Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, if we do not give our attention, both publicly and privately, to devotion unto your word, how then might we be made to be like Christ? So Lord, in this time, please help us to focus. Help the words that come forth from this pulpit to be clear and to be applicable to our lives. Lord, give us eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts that are humbled and eager and ready to receive, respond to, and to apply the glorious truth of your word. Lord, how grateful we are for the freedom of this country, the freedom to gather together week after week to worship you. But Lord, that is a passing and a temporal freedom is a freedom that's fleeting and that will pass away. But there is a greater freedom that we know, freedom from the bondage of sin and the law and the power of Satan, freedom that we know only through Jesus Christ. Lord, while we celebrate freedom in our land today, may we, even beyond that, even greater than that, celebrate and have great triumphant joy in the freedom of that we have in Christ. Lord, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Our freedom cost the Son of God his very life. May we not take that for granted. May we respond with lives of devotion unto our glorious and humble and redeeming Savior. Lord, that begins right now by having ears to hear and receive your word. So do that work in us, Lord, not for our sakes, not for the sake of Grace Covenant Baptist Church, but for the sake of your great name, so that we might be made more like Christ, that we might be lights in a dark and darkening world, that we might proclaim the glories and the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Lord, please do this by the power of your Spirit in us today. Pray all this now in Christ's name. Amen. 
So as Paul transitions from defense to offense, the main purpose that we see in the text before us today is similar to what we continue to see throughout Galatians. Paul is walking a straight, linear, logical path in this letter. So as we try to break out a main purpose each week in each text, we're going to see repetition because Paul is making the same point over and over. He exhorts here those who are in Christ to be sober-minded. He tells us to resist falsehood, to seek to prove ourselves to be genuine in our faith by living in the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you take nothing else away from today other than that, understand that Scripture exhorts us here to be sober-minded, to prove ourselves to be genuine in our faith by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who have new life in Christ must walk in the Spirit. In a a number of months or weeks or however long it takes, when we get to Galatians chapter 5, we'll examine that in depth, that we must walk by the Spirit. We must walk by the Spirit because otherwise we will be led away and led astray by devious and deceptive false teachers. The falsehood we see in this passage is this idea of someone bewitching another. We'll look at that in a moment, but we understand that we must stand firm against falsehood. Now, as we look at this text, Paul begins with a series of questions. There's about six questions in verses 1 through 5, and we're going to look at this. We're going to kind of summarize and have three questions, three headings with three questions to walk through this text. So firstly, verse 1, let's consider the question, who bewitched you? That's what Paul asked. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So Paul begins with a strong statement. He calls the Galatians foolish. He says, you foolish Galatians, why are you so quickly turning away from the truth that had been proclaimed to you? To be foolish in this context is to be mentally lazy or to be careless. To to be foolish is to be of of slow and dull heart and mind. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is on that road to Emmaus with those two disciples, he says, oh, you foolish men who are slow of heart, who do not understand that the prophets proclaimed of my coming. So to be foolish is to be of slow and cold and dull heart and mind. To be foolish is is to run into the traps of sin. Paul uses this term in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, and Titus chapter 3, verse 3, with regard to sin. So he's, I think, essentially telling the Galatians, not only are you being mentally lazy, not only are you being careless with the truth, but you are allowing yourself to run headlong into sin, headlong into deception. You're allowing yourself to run headlong into false religion because you are fools, because you are mentally lazy and you don't want to stand firmly upon the truth. You have made a choice to walk into heretical thinking and believing. The Galatians are doing exactly what Paul told Peter that he could not do back in chapter 2, verse 18. He said, For if I rebuild 
what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The Galatians are rebuilding the Jewish faith that they had once destroyed. So they went in, they tore down this works-based religion, and now they're building it back up. How much more foolish could a person be? So then Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Who bewitched you? What does it mean to be bewitched? Can it happen to a true believer? Can a true believer be bewitched? Let's look at the term bewitched. What does it mean? It's used only once in all of Scripture. So that makes it a little bit challenging because we don't have anything to cross-reference this to. But there are definitions, and I think there's ideas that we can understand and pull from this. Um, Greek dictionaries define this as to mean to bring evil upon a person by feigned praise. So it's that idea of, of flattery or deceit. It's to mislead by an evil eye or to so charm or bewitch. Now, when we hear the word bewitching, you probably are like me and immediately start thinking about sorcery or witchcraft, things that are right there in the term, but that's really not at all what this word means. It, it speaks of deceit. It speaks of preying on someone's emotions. MacArthur commented here, that the, this is the use of feeling over fact. It's the use of emotion over clear understanding of the truth. So it's a descriptive word for someone using charm or flattery or this idea of fascination to deceive, to, to mislead someone away from the truth and into unsound doctrine and unsound teaching. Cause mind when you think about deceit, in the scripture, deceit with regard to charm, your mind probably is like me again and goes to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Charm though, the, the writer of Proverbs says, is deceitful. It deceives, it leads astray. This is what the Judaizers surely did. They came in with charm, with flattery, with some type of winsome and pleasurable speech to build up these Galatian converts, to, to buddy up next to them, to become their friends, and then to deceitfully lead them away from the truth. The, the Judaizers probably feigned a love and concern for the Judaizers. We just don't want you to, to fall into the false religion of believing only Christ saves you need Christ and works, and we're just telling you that because we love you, because we want you to, to be saved from your sin. Surely you can envision that happening from the Judaizers. They came in with a fake love with a goal only to broaden their own influence and power and authority. So that's bewitching. It's essentially deceitful charm. Or flattery. And so the next question is to ask can it happen to believers? Can a believer be led away into falsehood by charm or flattery or bewitching? And I'm a little bit hesitant in this answer because it needs a lot of clarity. We need to make sure that we understand this correctly. But I think the answer is both yes and no with a few proper disclaimers. Paul is writing clearly to the Galatians as believers. In, in chapter 5, verse 7, he tells them that they are running well. They are showing true evidences of being in the faith, 
And yet, he says, who has bewitched you? As though it has truly happened. So on one hand, you have this idea that these Galatians are believers and they have been bewitched. But dear friends, it's also true. It's also borne out in Scripture that someone who is truly in Christ will not and cannot fall away from the truth permanently. Paul talked in Galatians 1 about the Galatians believing a different gospel, a gospel that is not really the true gospel, and he warned them that if they did that, and if somebody came and preached a different gospel to them, that person was to be condemned. If that person preaching the gospel was condemned, surely the person believing that gospel would be condemned. And so when we see this, when we think about this idea of can a believer fall away from the truth or not, we have to be careful. We have to understand that there may be periods or seasons of struggle with the truth, but a believer, a true follower of Christ with the Holy Spirit of God in them will not fall away permanently. I think we could probably, carefully, understanding that we are not the ultimate authority, but the Lord is, we could probably even say that they won't fall away from the truth for an extended period of time. You read things like Hebrews chapter 6 and see portraits of those who fall away from the faith in such a way that they cannot be recovered. That should be sobering. And that should cause us to fear and tremble if we are dabbling in falsehood. So was that the case with the Galatians? Were they true believers who were, who were struggling with falsehood and, and would turn back? Or were they never true believers who were falling into falsehood and would never make it back? Well, we don't know. You know, we, we could probably go back and read through church history and see how, the, how they remained, how they were steadied, and, and how some probably fell away as well. What we know is that time is often a revealer of all truth. Time often reveals truth. MacArthur, you know, he says time and truth go hand in hand. The truth will reveal itself over time. Someone's profession of faith, someone's profession of following Christ will be made clear over the course of their life, most of the time now. Again, most of the time. The Lord can work as he wills. He is sovereign. He is in control. He can can change hearts even at the moment of somebody's last breath. But time and truth, genuine faith is revealed over time. Time and truth go hand in hand. The charge for us is that we must hold fast to the gospel that has been preached to us. We must hold fast to the truth. Hebrews 3.14 says that we have become partakers of Christ if, if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast, if we remain until the end. The fact of the matter, friends, is that those who fall away prove that they were never really part of the faith. They went out from us because they were not of us. Those who remain, those who stand firm in the truth, do not do so because of of discipline. They do not do so because of their own strength. Those who remain to the end is because the Lord's grace guards and keeps and holds that person. They hold firmly to the truth because of the sovereign gracious, merciful, faithful working of God. So what is the basis 
for such a strong statement by Paul. You don't see the word fool. You don't, you don't call people a, a person a fool lightly in Scripture. You don't talk about someone being bewitched lightly. So, so why does he make such a strong statement? Well, look at the end of verse 1. He says, Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, when he talks about Jesus being publicly portrayed as crucified, he's talking about his proclamation of Christ. He's saying that beforehand, before you're falling away, I have preached Christ truly and faithfully to you, and you have believed that message. Jesus Christ was publicly, rightfully, truthfully proclaimed before you. And so you who are falling away are doing so against a true preaching of the gospel. So Paul says, you foolish Galatians, you heard of the saving work of Christ and you quickly are turning away from that. Now we understand that though. We understand the foolishness of man when it comes to the cross of Christ. What does 1 Corinthians 1 say? It says that the word of the cross is indeed foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God, is the power of God on display. So ask yourself the question, as you look at your life, as you examine your own heart, is the word of the cross foolishness to you? Is, is it folly? Is it not enough for your salvation? Did the price that Christ paid at the cross for your sins, did he pay for every sin or is there something that you must add to it? If you answer that question and say, well, yeah, I think the word of the cross is foolishness. I don't think that it was enough. Well, then, friends, you're not in Christ. If, if you do not, if you cannot publicly stand up and say that the word of the cross is the power of God unto salvation, then you are believing a different gospel. So Paul asks, he says, who, who has bewitched you? You've heard and believed the message of Christ, but quickly and in a short time, you have fallen away. Dear friends, there's so much going on in our day, so, so much deceit. And so much falsehood, so many who would strive to lead you away from Christ and his word. And we must stand firm. We must remain committed to the truth. You must know that evil people will come in and seek to deceive you. As Paul talks about this term, bewitch, they will seek to charm you, to flatter you, to buy and to earn your affection and your commitment. And then they will deceive you. They will lead you away into a condemnable, false gospel. Dear friends, we must stand firm. It is God's truth that abides and remains and stands forever. So that's the first question. Who has bewitched you? Moving to verses 2 and 3, there's a second question to consider. Paul essentially says here, how did you receive the Spirit? Verse 2, he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul asks question upon question upon question here, and ultimately these are rhetorical questions 
because Paul's moving on. He's not waiting for an answer. He knows the answer that he is going to get. But what does he say here? He says, there's only one thing I want to know. There's a question I'm about to ask that is of greatest and utmost importance. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So let's consider that question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Scripture is clear about this. We could go many places, but to keep us in a singular book with a couple references, think about 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, and then chapter 4, verse 13. There the apostle writes, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he, the Lord, abides in that person. We know this, we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We know that he abides in us, therefore we abide in him by the Spirit that he has given us. In chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 John, John writes there, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. So Paul asks the question, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How does John say that we receive the Spirit? It is a gift of God. John testifies. Other scripture also testifies that to be the truth that the Holy Spirit is a gift of God, is a gift given on the basis of faith. You say, well, how do we know that's given on the basis of faith? Consider John chapter 14. We just finished the Gospel of John not long ago. In that 14th chapter, Jesus talks about the helper coming. He says, if I go away from you, I'm going to send the helper. But what's interesting is when we go back to the beginning of John chapter 14, Jesus makes this statement in verse 1. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. So later in John 14, he says, I'm going to send you the helper. But if we were to back up, what is the basis of him sending that helper? He says, believe in God and believe also in me. The Spirit is given on the basis of faith. This is the only thing Paul wants to know. Was the gift of the Spirit on the basis of your faith or on the basis of your works? You know Ephesians 2. You likely know it by heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. So the Spirit is given as a result of faith. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that faith is a gift from God. So... To answer the question, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, assuredly we can all affirm that the Spirit comes as a result of faith. So Paul continues then using this logic that he has used all along. He says, are you so foolish? In verse 3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? I talked about a moment ago, he makes clear that this is a rhetorical question because verse 3 is a clear, a clear response to the answer that he knows the Galatians are going to give. They're going to say, yeah, we were begun by faith, but now we're going to add works. He says, are you so foolish you were begun by the Spirit, but now are you going to be perfected? Now are you going to be made complete by the works of the law? What sense does that make if it's the Spirit who begins the work 
Why does the Spirit begin the work and then we come in and add to the work and make the work complete? Clearly, Paul's not talking about a perfect life. He's not saying where you begun by the Spirit, but now you have to become perfect on your own merit. The Lexham Bible translation, I think, is helpful. Here it says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be made complete by the flesh? If the Spirit begun the work, who is going to complete the work? Surely it is that same Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He said, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began the good work in you, Paul exclaims, he who began that work will complete it. So those who are born of the Spirit, those who are genuinely converted by work of God, they will be made complete by the work of that same Spirit. Dear friends, that is a sure and an eternal promise of God. So just pause and think about that for just a second because we're about to look at the flip side of that before we can move on, that if the Spirit brings you to life, and Scripture is extremely clear that that is the case, then is that same Spirit who will see you through, who will hold you and will ensure that you do not fall away. He will bring to completion the work that He began. So now with that, I want to consider the flip side of that so we don't go out being these these numb-minded people who think that it's just going to be the Spirit does this, and if the Spirit wants to sanctify me, He can and will, and I'll just go and live my life however I want. That's not what the Bible tells us. So before we move forward, let's think about this for just a second, that this promise of the Spirit's work does not get us off the hook for the command to obey. We just talked about Philippians 1.6, about the one who begins the work will finish it. When that same letter, Philippians 2 now, verses 12 and 13, Paul exhorts them, he says, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. You work out your salvation. You do that work. And you work out your salvation, friends, he says, with fear and with trembling. But then he also adds on that it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But that's pause and just consider that. Paul says, the Spirit began the work, the Spirit will complete the work, but oh, by the way, you work out your salvation. You dedicate yourself to the study of Scripture. You dedicate yourself to cutting off the arm of the flesh. You dedicate yourself to rising early or to staying up late so that you have time to commune with the Lord in prayer, to read His Word. You order your life such that you can meet and gather with the saints week in and week out. You order your life from Monday to Saturday such that you can have fellowship and accountability with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You work out your salvation. But as you work out your salvation, know that it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His good pleasure, of course, is his glory. So this is the balancing tension, friends, that does not allow the Christian to sin without responsibility or accountability. 
This is the, the healthy tension that, that allows us to obey while all of our obedience is only to the praise of God's glory. So what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 5, verse 16. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. You let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father. They know that the root of those good works is the Father who is in heaven and his Spirit who empowers you to do that. You know the, the words of James chapter 2, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Someone says to you, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So again, this is the balancing tension of Scripture. You know, we often hear tension and we think it's two forces pulling in opposite directions. There's also an idea of a tension that balances, that, that holds a system in place, a tension that is a safeguarding mechanism, a harmonizing mechanism. And that's what we see here about the work of the Spirit and our work merging together as we seek to honor the Lord. Your life in Christ is begun by the Spirit. It is completed by the Spirit, but it's by the Spirit's power that you must work out your salvation. A Spirit-filled person will lead a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled life is a life of obedience. A spirit-filled life is a life of fruit. Abide in the Lord and you will produce fruit. We will look at, at this again in, in a number of weeks when we get to Galatians 5, the idea of a spirit-filled life producing obedience and fruit. So we've seen the two questions now. Who, who has bewitched you? And how did you receive the Spirit? Now let's move to verses 4 and 5 and look at the third question of did you believe in vain? Did you believe in vain? Verse 4. Paul says, did you suffer, or as we'll see in a second, did you experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, there's a little bit of a challenge here with the, with the word suffer. It is a Greek word that's used often in Scripture, but the, the meaning, the translation of the word really depends on the context, the, the content of what's going around, on around that term, and so often in the New Testament, it speaks of affliction or undergoing evil. And so, when you see that rendered as suffer here, because it's most often translated as suffer in the other areas of the New Testament. However, it's a Greek word that really just speaks to experience. Did you experience these things in vain? Did you experience the outworking and the outpouring of God's grace in vain? to no end. So consider who Paul is addressing here, Jewish Christians who have converted and who have left Judaism. If you left Judaism in that day, you were treated as an outcast among the Jews. You were likely cut off from your family who remained in Judaism. Any, any Jewish life going on around you, you were kicked out and treated as an outcast. Paul says, did you experience all of that? Did you experience the the scorn of the Judaizers in vain? 
Did you go through that only to shortly later run back into that works-based religion? MacArthur puts it this way. He said, did you learn nothing at all from these experiences? Can't you think these things through and see that the claims of the Judaizers cannot possibly square with the gospel that you have been taught and the gospel that you have experienced? Did you go through all of this only to quickly desert it and turn back to the life that you once lived? Now notice, though, I think it's interesting that Paul adds kind of a hopeful note at the end of verse 4. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain if, indeed, it was in vain? If, indeed, it was in vain. This is, a, this is hopeful, but it's also a warning. 1 Corinthians 15.2 speaks of the gospel by which you are saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached unless you believed in vain. So there's this idea that there's a faith that is vanity, a faith that is useless, a faith that does not remain. But the hopefulness of Paul's statement is that there's also a faith that does remain. There's a faith that does indeed save. Faith that is in Christ alone, faith that is according to Scripture alone, and that is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So it says, did you believe, did you experience all this in vain, if indeed you are insisting on falling away and leaving the gospel of Christ? So then, verse 5, Paul concludes. He says, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And I think this is interesting as we look at this passage as a whole. In verse 1, Paul pointed to Christ. He said, Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Verses 2 and 3, he speaks of the Spirit having begun by the Spirit, and he said, then are you now being perfected by the flesh? And now in verse 5, he speaks of the Father. So you have the Son in verse 1, the Spirit in verse 3, and now you have the Father in verse 5. Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you? That is the Father's work and salvation. So Paul is making clear that this is a Trinitarian salvation that the Galatians are running away from. He says, does this Father now who miraculously provides the Spirit, is he doing that work through the law or through you hearing in faith? Or put this another way, if your salvation, Paul says, is a complete and full Trinitarian salvation, it is through Christ, it is applied and empowered by the Spirit, and is according to the will and the way of God, if this is your salvation, are you going to complete it by adding your works to it? If, if this is a work that took Father, Spirit, and Son to accomplish, are you now, oh man, going to bring your measly power and strength that God could grind to dust with just the blink of an eye or the snap of a finger? Are you now going to bring your works to, to see this salvation accomplished? Now clearly, Christ did not come to abolish the law. Christ came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled the law's requirements. And by Christ's work, we are freed from the power and the penalty and the bondage of the law. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that the law came that so that transgression would increase, so that transgression would be clear, 
and a parent. That was the reason for the law. But by Christ's power, we are freed from the power and the bondage of the law by the work of Christ. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom. You were extracted from your bondage to sin and the law. But do not use that freedom into, and don't turn that freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Since this is the purpose of law, surely the answer to Paul's question in verse 5 is that, that they received the Spirit. They did not believe in vain because they heard with faith. And he says, is he who provides you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So did they believe in vain? Did the Galatians believe in vain? Well, all is vanity if it's a faith that does not remain. If you have a faith that will be torn away when another false religion comes, your faith and all your works for that faith are worth nothing. In fact, those works will condemn you even further because they're works that are sin, because they're not Holy Spirit empowered. So Paul says, who bewitched you? How did you receive the Spirit and did you believe in vain? So let's tile this together. Let's wrap this up as we move to closing and conclude this. We've spent a lot of time talking about the right things this morning, about, about faith in Christ, about the work of the Spirit. We are brought to faith in Christ by the work of the Spirit and apart from the law. Those are good and those are right things from this passage that we should consider, that we should dwell upon and we should take away from this passage. It's critically important that we believe the right thing. As we say often, it's right doctrine that precedes right living. Right living is a result of good and right and correct doctrine. However, we must also draw our attention to where Paul began this. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has deceitfully led you astray into falsehood and into error? Paul says, you are fools for following someone who is coming in to flatter and charm you and to draw you away from the truth. Dear friends, we must be armed with right doctrine. We must be on the alert. We must be indeed sober-minded. We must have discerning spirits. We must not be suspicious of others, but we must be suspicious of of Satan, the the prowling lion who seeks someone to devour, as Peter describes. As Satan prowls around like a lion in this world seeking someone to devour, surely on the authority of Scripture we can see and understand that Satan's workers prowl around the church seeking someone to devour or to lead away into falsehood, to, to bewitch God's people and to lead them astray. So, friends, we must remain firm in our faith. We must, as we said at the outset, live a sober-minded spiritual life. We must know that we are saved not by our own works, but by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also must know that we are saved for good works, that we might walk in good works to the glory of God alone. I want to close, if you'll turn with me to the book of Jude. 
the book of Jude. This is one of my favorite passages in all Scripture. We'll read verses 17 through 25, and we'll conclude with this as we think about battling for the truth, being sober-minded and spirit-filled in our lives. Jude is the book right before Revelation, so turn to Revelation and then turn back a few pages. Jude, verse 17, it's just one chapter, verse 17 through verse 25. It says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment that was polluted by the flesh. Now to end on a positive note, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. For it's God who keeps us from stumbling. It is through the power of God working in us that we remain until the last day. And he does that work, dear friends, for his own glory. We walk in the power of the Spirit, obeying the word of God so that the world around us might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's close in a word of prayer.